This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Every so often, and it's usually about once a month, we have to do a program that's a catch-up show. We have so much material that piles up that we just can't get to it. So in today's program, we're going to debulk the pile. Although we may hear from some old friends before the hour is up. But anyway, let's begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being the 22nd of October. It was on October 22nd, since about 1200 BC, that the morning sun penetrates the innermost sanctuary of the Temple of the Sun God, Amun-Re, The sun's position on October 22nd and again on February 22nd each year determined the design of the temple built by Egyptian King Ramses II at Abu Simbel. If my memory serves me correctly from my trip to Egypt, Ramses II was the one that put the monuments everywhere in Egypt. And oddly enough, his mummy still exists. On October 22nd in 1797, the first parachute jump of note was made by French daredevil André-Jacques Garnerin, from a hydrogen balloon 3,200 feet above Paris. Riding in a basket below a cloth canopy 23 feet in diameter, he landed shaken but unhurt. On October 22nd in 1844, the second coming of Christ was supposed to occur. So thought William Miller and his followers. Miller, of course, was the leader of the Millerite movement, which in later developments became the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Miller made wrong predictions about Armageddon and the end of times, none of which managed to convince any of his followers that he didn't know what he was talking about. On this date in 1903, the infamous hired killer Tom Horn was hanged for the murder of Willie Nickel, the 14-year-old son of a southern Wyoming sheep rancher. Horn worked for the Wyoming Cattlemen's Association, who opposed sheep ranchers to the point of having them killed. On this date in 1936, German automaker Ferdinand Porsche submits a proposal to Adolf Hitler's government to build a small, reliable car for the average German. It was to be called the Volkswagen, or People's Car. The war got in the way of making a whole lot of Volkswagens, but uh, they did have a rebirth in the 50s and 60s, and led to all those Herbie movies. Actually, ask almost anyone who drove a Volkswagen Beetle, and they'll recall them with great fondness. On this date in 1962, and I remember this fairly well, in a televised speech, President John F. Kennedy reveals that U.S. spy planes have discovered Soviet missile bases under construction in Cuba and announced that a naval blockade would follow to prevent Soviet ships from bringing more weapons to the communist island. Luckily, World War III was avoided during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is, I hope, about as close as the world ever gets to nuclear Armageddon. And finally, on this date in 1964, French novelist and philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. He turned it down. And no, we don't know whether it's because he looked at the list of previous recipients and thought it was the lamest thing he'd ever laid his eyes on. We're meaning to talk about the Nobel Prize in Literature on this program, but uh, President Obama winning the Peace Prize kind of derailed that. But we'll see if we can't return to that subject, uh, perhaps with our good friend Dr. Andy Jones. The host every Wednesday of KDVS's Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. As a professor of English at UCD, he may have a thing or two to say about 
the Nobel Prize in Literature. And again, maybe not. Our quote of the day comes from philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. Or is it Sartre? I don't know. But at some point he said, hell is other people. Yeah, they still gave him the Nobel Prize. Our quip of the day comes from comedian Tracy Morgan, who said, I can't watch American Idol. It's like karaoke without the booze. Our thought-slash-joke of the day is as follows. Have you ever wondered if one of the dollar bills in your wallet or purse was ever in a stripper's butt crack? Possibly not, but I bet you're wondering now. Our stat of the day is as follows. Americans were asked what the most annoying expression in the English language was, and the winners were, anyway, 7%. It is what it is, 11%. You know, 25%. And the winner, whatever, at 47%. Anyway, it is what it is, you know, whatever. Let's proceed into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week this week for having Ben Affleck's baby after a sperm bank in Southern California started categorizing sperm based on the celebrity the donor most resembles, ranging from Ben Affleck to Seth Rogen to Russell Crowe. Sperm recipients can search through the database to find the celebrity donor they want their baby to look like. We suspect there's quite a bit of subjectivity in this matter. Attention, trial lawyers of America. About 18, 19 years from now, you're going to be able to sue some people saying, you know, he really doesn't look anything like Russell Crowe. It was, on the other hand, a a pretty bad week for long, romantic walks on the beach. At least if you live in Vero Beach, Florida. Recent visitors were shocked to find a trail of large feces in the sand that went on for miles, apparently. Said a beach stroller, it looked like Great Dane poop all along the beach. The culprits reportedly were manatees, whose feces were washed onto the shore after being stirred up from the ocean floor by some strong winds. You know, one of these days I'm about to get around to telling one of my experiences in western India, which this reminds me of, but today would not be that day. And apparently it was an ugly week a couple weeks back for true believers when it was revealed that Italian chemist Luigi Garascelli had created a replica of the Shroud of Turin using materials and techniques available in the 14th century. Clearly those who believe that the Shroud is the actual cloth that covered Jesus in the tomb are facing a new challenge. The Shroud was first discovered in 1360 and carbon dating done indicates that it was made about the time it was found. Many people had still insisted that only a miracle could account for the cloth's full-body image of a bearded, crucified man. Said Mr. Garashelli, many people believe the shroud has unexplainable characteristics that cannot be reproduced by human means. The result obtained clearly indicates this could be done with the use of inexpensive materials and with a quite simple procedure. No word on the gate receipts at the museum down in Stockton that is 
dedicated to the Shroud of Turin. Personally, I look at the face and say, this doesn't look Jewish. In fact, he looks suspiciously like 14th century Europeans. Right down to the hairstyle. And a final bonus item that is not good, but we're not sure whether it's bad or ugly. It's certainly got elements of both. Pick. It was either a bad or ugly week for spontaneous combustion. After a flock of sheep in Jordan apparently burst into flames and virtually disappeared in front of a startled shepherd. Geologists say that the soil the sheep had been walking on had become saturated with methane from a nearby sewage plant. Somehow it got ignited by a spark, and there went the flock. But here's the part I like best about the story. Jordanian geologist Bogjot Edwan (laughs) assured frightened Jordanians, there's no need to panic. No, don't worry, folks. Nothing to see here. Move it on. Move it on. Haven't you ever seen an ignited flock of sheep before? Come on. And believe it or not, we also have another item from the bad and or ugly file, which is simply as follows. Reportedly, the first complete season of Mr. Ed is now available on DVD for $40. According to the purveyors of this item, the DVD set includes some memorable extras for fans, including co-stars Alan Young and Connie Hines providing a commentary track for the pilot episode. Don't you think the commentary ought to be from Mr. Ed? Actually, we don't. All right, let's do some follow-ups. In a little remarked upon news item last month, it was revealed that Diebold has exited the electronic voting machine business. It sold its election systems unit to a small rival, according to Veronica Dagger in the Wall Street Journal. Election systems and software paid $5 million for the unit, one-fifth of what Diebold paid in 2002. Diebold, of course, is the leading maker of ATMs, which are actually secure. Diebold entered the business after the 2000 presidential election fiasco, which somehow got palmed off as a problem with how the votes were counted. Well, it it definitely was that, but it wasn't because they needed voting machines to count the votes. Anyway, Congress mandated that states upgrade their voting technology with the Help America Vote Act, but Diebold quickly came under fire, not the least of which from this program, with critics questioning the accuracy and security of its machines. By the way, this issue uh, has not gone away with the election of President Obama. We're going to have to pay a visit to our good friend Brad Friedman of the Brad Blog to, uh, to see where this has gone uh, in the past uh, year. All right, and as follow-up to an excellent column a few weeks back by Marcos Breton in the Sacramento Bee, we have a column that's even better, which I think I will read in its entirety. We hope to bring Mr. Breton on this program in the future, but I don't know that anything he could say to us in an interview could be better than what he wrote, which is as follows. What's your solution to homelessness in Sacramento? That question is hurled like a rock at anyone who dares question the methods of Loaves and Fishes, Sacramento's largest homeless charity. Along with attorney Mark Marin, Loaves and Fishes advocates have gotten tons of publicity this year for pushing the idea of a legal tent city in Sacramento. They want an open lot where 40 or so homeless people can camp full-time, relieve themselves in portable toilets, shower in portable showers, and receive charity from do-gooders everywhere. It's a bad public policy, a health hazard, and a liability nightmare. 
And it does nothing to solve the core issues of homelessness, poverty, substance abuse, mental health problems, and turbulent lives. The truth is, there is no solution to homelessness. But here in Sacramento, reason has been drowned out by a vocal minority. Sister Libby Fernandez and Joan Burke, who run the Loaves and Fishes Homeless Complex, are great at generating media attention, public sympathy, and monetary donations. Marin has gotten rich suing cities, counties, and law enforcement agencies on behalf of downtrodden clients. Together with Mayor Kevin Johnson and others in the faith and charity communities, they paint quite a picture. A Catholic nun and some very affluent people advocating for homeless folks to remain in squalor, preferably next to other poor people and a safe distance from Sacramento's well-heeled neighborhoods. It's not that these voices shouldn't be heard, they just shouldn't be the dominant voices. It's time for their 15 minutes to be up. Winter is upon us. The first storm came and went, and Sacramento wasted this year on a tent city proposal that had no support outside a small group of advocates. Meanwhile, the county eliminated many of its services for the poor, and the great fanfare Loaves and Fishes kept preaching a handout as opposed to a hand up. They enabled destructive behavior and invite others to donate money and goods to this cause. How about another approach? Sacramento is a passionate and sensible community. It's compassionate to want to help everyone needing shelter. It's sensible to conclude that local government can't help everyone. Any effort should require people to follow rules, stay clean and sober, and stay out of trouble. How about a government and private effort to lease vacant homes as transitional housing for homeless people? How about churches using their resources to house people instead of beating a path to loaves and fishes to drop off donations? Before he was co-opted by the tent city forces, Johnson talked about tough love toward the homeless. It's time to go back to that to explore ideas where the goal is getting people into housing and back into productive lives. To that I say, well said, Mr. Breton. Anyway, well said, Mr. Breton. We'll uh, return to that topic in the future. We also want to note a, a fine piece of reporting in the California Aggie earlier this month. Article by Kelly Reese noted that continuing consumers of clove and flavored cigarettes may have to find an alternative as of September 22nd. As of that date, we began the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act, which put a ban on all clove and flavored cigarettes, excluding menthol. The ban, which is only one component of the act, aims to deter the younger market from smoking, since cigarette companies often market clove and flavored cigarettes to this age group. Anyway, good article. Uh, We applaud the efforts of whoever got that bill passed. Clove cigarettes are a health hazard, and they stink to high heaven. And if we're going to talk about uh, heading off gateway drugs, this would be an excellent place to start. Anyway, from the you heard it first on this program file, which is not exactly true, but we're going to use it anyway, we have the following item ripped from the headlines. Bone Crunching Debunks First Monkey Ida Fossil Hype by Brandon Keem. Originally promoted as the stem of the primate family tree, it now appears that Darwinius Massilie, better known as Ida, the fossil that, quote, changes everything, unquote, belonged to a fringe branch. That's the conclusion of researchers who analyze primate fossils to determine where their own discovery, dubbed Aphrodapus and closely related to Darwinus, belongs on the tree. Far from spawning the ancestor of humans, the 47-million-year-old Darwinius seems merely to have gone extinct, leaving no descendants. According to study co-author Jonathan Perry, a Midwestern University paleoanthropologist, 
It's the first phylogenetic analysis of this important animal. By our analysis, the taxon Darwinius does not appear to be at the root of all simians. It's on the opposite side of the tree, said Mr. Keeman writing the article. The analysis of Perry's team, published Wednesday in Nature, would likely be of purely academic interest had Darwinius been introduced according to paleontological custom. That would have been in carefully written papers presented for review to the scientific community who already had some informal familiarity with the research. But that's precisely what didn't happen. Known from a single specimen purchased by the University of Oslo from a private fossil collector and studied in total secrecy, Darwinius was announced to the world at a May press conference featuring New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. The scientific article describing Darwinius published in Plus One came after the TV special and book, both entitled The Link. You know, these guys should have consulted with uh, Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischman about how well it worked to announce to the world they discovered cold fusion 20 years ago. If you're wrong, your colleagues tend to beat up on you a little bit. And truthfully, that's what the researcher Jorn Hurum deserves after announcing in a press conference, this is the first link to all humans. Apparently not. And by the way, a phrase that needs to be retired from the English language is the missing link. This seems to be perpetuated by creationist goofballs. You know, we, we've said, as of a couple years ago, one of these days we're going to get around to talking to one of the physical anthropologists here at uh, UC Davis or perhaps Chico State or, you know, at some point we're going to have to get around to talking to some uh, physical anthropologists about the discovery of Artie, the 4.4 million year old sp- fossil in Africa that some are calling the missing link. Very interesting specimen, but, um, but I, I don't know as much about it as I should to talk about it on the radio. So we'll see what we can do to correct that in the near future and bring on an expert. By the way, Artie is also not the missing link. All right, let's take a break in a moment. Before we do, let's talk about uh, the curious story of the underwater document signing, which took place in the Maldive Islands. Apparently, members of the Maldives' cabinet... Don scuba gear and used hand signals last week at an underwater meeting at an underwater meeting staged to highlight the threat of global warming to the lowest lying nation on earth. President Mohammed Nasheed and 13 other government officials submerged and took their seats at a table on the seafloor, 20 feet below the surface of a lagoon off Girfushi, an island usually reserved for military training. As bubbles floated up from their face masks, the president, vice president, Cabinet Secretary and 11 ministers signed a document calling on all countries to cut their carbon dioxide emissions. The president has promised to make the Maldives, with a population of 350,000, the world's first carbon-neutral nation within the next decade. And we wish him the best. Let us take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We've got plenty more. Stay tuned. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade he'd let us in knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade i'd ask my friends to come and see an octopus 
has got in the shade We would be warm below the storm In our little hideaway beneath the waves 